Well, this is our fourth week now in a series of messages that we've called Easter People. Easter People. And what we're doing is we're taking this book and we're looking at the different stories of individuals who interacted with Jesus after he rose from the dead because they were the Easter people. Joseph of Arimathea was an Easter person. He got to give his grave to Jesus. Hello. That's amazing. And he forever, he, he forever is in this story because of what he gave to God. And so the power of giving, the power of generosity, we get to be a part of something historic. You saw in that video, God's doing great work through our church. And as we give, we get to be a part of the story. Why? Because we're Easter people too. We're like Joseph of Arimathea. We're like Mary Magdalene, out of whom came seven devils. Can you believe that was the kickoff of the series? That felt like forever ago, Mary Magdalene. Magdala? You know the Magdalene. Remember that? That was incredible. Uh, and, and so we're, we're getting to be like her. And we're getting to be like Joseph. This week, we're going to talk about Thomas. Thomas. Thomas is one of my favorite characters. And the more I get to know him, the more I like him. And his story comes to us in John chapter 20. And the title of my message is, I've seen enough. I've seen enough. Those words ever come out of your mouth? Like, like you're, someone's trying to sell you something, and they're keeping on trying to sell, it, sell you on it. And you're like, stop. I've seen enough. I'm sold. I will take one of those, right? Like, I, I, no, please stop. Stop, stop, stop. Know when you have a sale on your hands. No, when you've seen yes, stop it, yes, I, I'm sold, I've seen enough. That's the title of my message. Come on, say it out loud with me. I've seen enough. I've seen enough. John chapter 20, and in verse 24, this is immediately on the heels of Jesus appearing in the room with the disciples that we looked at two weeks ago. That a room where 10 were in a room, they were abiding by CDC regulations, 10 of them in a room. And Jesus showed up and breathed on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. If you weren't with us, we said that when the 10 became 11, they all caught something. So stay home, kids, right? And so don't be going to New Orleans. Don't be doing Mardi Gras. Don't be at the beach spring break style, right? Stay home. Uh, and so immediately after that, the disciples went out to find the person who wasn't there. Why? Well, verse 24, John 20 says, now Thomas called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, that's awesome. I believe. Where's he at? I'm going to trust him. I wish I had seen him. No, that's not how it goes. It says, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have believed. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And that, Father, is what we hope happens in this moment. We've logged on to meet with you. We know we need you. There's only discouragement and fear and worry apart from you. But in your presence, there is rest, there is peace, and there is life in your name. So would you do something miraculous, Father? As we knit together across this stream of TVs and monitors and Wi-Fi connections and routers and, and cellular access points, as we together meet in this moment, would you flood life through our gathering, life in your name? For we unify around this idea that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And it's in the light of that reality that we've come to bask and to warm ourselves and to once again face another week in light of that truth. And Lord, if there's even just one person who logged on today, saw it on Facebook, found it on Google, was, was texted it by a friend, now here they are on Spotify listening, and they don't know you, they're lost without you, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I've seen enough. The truth is that in this day, it's easier than ever to be a skeptic. I think because we all have the internet, we have a certain level of power to not take things as they're spoken to us because we know we can Google it later, right? We know we can ask Alexa. So I think a lot of times, and I'm just speaking for me here, when people tell me things, I'll sort of like be nodding my head because I don't want to be that guy who's just, you know, abruptly letting someone know that they're wrong, like with a bold-faced correction of their ignorance in front of everybody, right? So uh, I want to do it kind of on my own time, but I, I've been in a thousand situations where someone told me something and I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, and like as quickly as I can, I'm pulling my phone out to like Google it under the table. And, and usually if I find out that they were wrong, I'll just smile. I'm not, I don't want to always want to tell them. I'm just like, you're wrong, you know, like in my heart. And if I'm with someone else, like we'll walk away. I'll usually wait till we walk away to be like, that was totally inaccurate, right? It's like, right, well, why are we so skeptical? I think partially it's because we have access to more information than anybody has ever. And I think it's also true that at times we've been deceived. And what do they say? Once bitten, twice shy. So, so when it comes to like things you're being sold, and this, this is where it gets me, right? Like I'll, I'll, be, I'll see an advertisement online and I'm like, my new normal is to like assume it's probably too good to be true. Let me tell you the story that burned me real recently. Uh, I was in New York with my wife and uh, this was before the travel ban. And we were at dinner 
And I was talking about how I have like a fear of my car hitting a deer. Like, and of course, that's a very real fear. I live in Montana. There are deer everywhere. You know what I'm saying? No, it's not like everywhere, everywhere. Like people who don't live in Montana have this sort of like image in their head of our life here. And they just picture like you go into a restaurant and like an elk is serving you, you know, and like the buffalo comes out with a dessert car right on his hump and bald eagle flies in with the check or something like that, right? Like that, that's, that's not exactly how it is. It's pretty close. Uh, but there are deer everywhere and there, there are elk and, 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 and moose and, and, and grizzlies and, and eagles. And there, that, that is a thing. And I know a lot of people who have hit a deer. Who on this platform has hit a deer with your car? Anybody? Yeah, right here, right, right here, right here, right? I know your, 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 your mom and dad, they, they hit an elk one time and it blew the airbags out in their vehicle. I remember that really vividly. Yeah, so I have this like super fear of like hitting a deer and I'm, I've trained for it. I've thought about it a lot, right? Because they say you don't want to swerve if you, get, if you get killed oftentimes because you swerve to not hit it. So you have to tell yourself to hit it. I'm going to break, but I'm going to hit the deer. Because better to hit the deer and keep going than to swerve and end up in the ditch or hit a telephone pole or oncoming traffic. So you have to, it's counterintuitive, but you tell yourself, like, when, it, when I drive one day, I'm going to hit the deer if I have to. Break, but hit the deer, right? All right, scratch that. Just hit the deer. All right, so, <laughs> all right, so, so what happens is, oh, man, we're not putting that one on the internet. All right, so in the moment, I'm telling this to this group of people, and I'm like, I'm, I've got this fear. I've lived in Montana 13 years, but I've never hit a deer, right? And, uh, and, and this, 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 this nice lady uh, tells me, oh, do you have deer whistles? I go, deer whistles? She goes, yeah, I grew up in the Midwest. There's deer everywhere. You don't want to hit them, so you got to put deer whistles on your car. If you put deer whistles on your car, the wind rushes through them. The shape of the whistle attracts the wind. It blows out a frequency that the deer can't stand, and the deer will run away from your car because of your deer whistles. It's like having like, you know, shark repellent for deer. And she tells me this and I'm like, that's a thing? She goes, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I think you think you'd probably get them on the internet. So I'm at this dinner party and I reach on the table, I get on Amazon and I type in deer whistles and it comes right up. And I'm like, this is the greatest day of my life. I buy them, get home from the trip, forgot all about it. Open up this package, I'm like, what's this? Deer whistles. And then I got, I'm like a kid in a candy store. I'm so excited. I'm like, Jenny, I have saved our family, right? I run out to the car, I stick deer whistles on her car, on my car. I'm ready to start putting them on bicycles, right? Lennox's Fisher-Price plastic vehicle. It's got deer whistles on it. It is pimped out. He's ready to go, right? Sadly, I finished installing all these, and then I thought, I never got on the safari and actually looked into the science behind it. And I, I was actually thinking I was going to use it in a sermon. Like, how cool is that? Like, living for God is like a deer whistle that keeps the devil away, right? And, and I, I thought I better have some empirical evidence to, to back this up. Luckily, that should be pretty easy. You know, the car with the deer, less, you know, the deer whistles, less deer. Oh, man. I found a study that was done where uh, cars were driven through a stretch of deer-infested territory with and without deer whistles. And it uh, seems to have absolutely no bearing on the ability of the deer to not be in the road. So um, they're still there on my car because I don't want to scratch the paint taking them off, and I don't know how to get them off. But, but, but here, here's the point. If you tell me right now some new thing, I, because of experiences like that, tend to be a little bit on the skeptical side. Why? Because I've seen enough. We hear stuff, and we just think, hmm, I don't know. So right now, here, here's, a little, here's a little experiment. Um, if, if I tell you that Australia, the continent, is exactly as wide as the moon is, Yes or no? It's true. If I tell you that the entirety of South America is east 
of Florida and that it should probably be called East America? What do you think? Play, play along in the comments. Is it true or is it false? Or are you still just worried that I cussed? Okay, so, so, so here's the truth. It should be called East America because it is east of Florida. It's not below us. It's kind of off to the, the side of us. But things like that you hear and you just think, I, I don't know. I don't know. I've been tricked. I don't know. I'm not sure who to believe on stuff. Why? Because in all of us, there is a little bit of skepticism, which is appropriate to begin our conversation about Thomas, who here in John chapter 20 is told by his friends that Jesus has risen from the dead. And he famously doubted that it was true, did not believe. And, and really, what, what he did shouldn't be called doubt, because doubt is saying, I, I can't believe. And what Thomas said is, I won't believe. So he should be called, you know, if we're going to nickname him, disbelieving Thomas. Because doubt is, I don't know. I, I don't know if I can. I don't know if, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't, I don't know how this is. And that's natural. Doubt is, doubt is natural to rise up in all of our hearts. What he said is, no matter what, unless this happens, I won't believe. And that's why Jesus, when he corrected him, didn't say, don't doubt, little Thomas. He said, don't be unbelieving. Don't choose to not believe. Don't set your heart to unbelief. Instead, choose to believe. Because even if presented with compelling evidence, there still has to be faith that rises up, no matter what. Listen to me very carefully. I believe in God and I don't believe in God are both statements of faith. Any way you live, it still chooses faith. And he was being told, don't stay stuck in disbelief. Now, let's back up. Um, because of this moment, this John 20 scene, Thomas has been nicknamed Doubting Thomas. If you've grown up in church or familiar with the Bible, you know that's almost like a, a, a moniker. Like you, you picture Esther in her beauty, beauty crown, you know, from the beauty pageant. Esther wore a beautiful sash and twirled her dress before the king, right? Like, it's like you just picture her, beauty queen winner, right? When you picture Thomas, out of all the times he pops up in scripture, the scene that comes to your mind is probably this one. Oh, yeah, Thomas, doubter, right? Like, like and by the way, how rude is that? That the, the one mistake he made in his life, the big one, right? Now, it's pretty big for sure, but that that is like what we identify him with. How many of you are thankful that God, when he thinks of us, he does not Google search the one worst thing we've ever done and picture that as the one thing he holds us uh, accountable by? That's not how he looks at us. In fact, the Bible says that when God looks at you, Liz, when God looks at you, Shayla, when God looks at you, Riley, he doesn't even see your sin. When God looks at you at home, when he sees you, uh, Patricia, when he sees you, Henry, when he, when he, when he looks at you, Jelena and Sean and, and Dano, and when he sees you, Zachary and Sophia, when he sees you, Todd and Anna, when he sees you, Lavena, he doesn't even see your sin. He, he only sees his son. He sees himself in you. And that's how he loves us. And sometimes I show up for my quiet time going, God, how can you love me? I'm a failure as a dad. I, I blew it as a boss. I'm, I'm not even a good Christian sometimes. I'm, I'm a terrible example. What, what am I? Th and and I, how could you even love me? And he says, it's because I see myself in you. I see my son upon you. I see my righteousness. He's, he's, he's hidden us in Christ, and he doesn't even see our sins and lawless deeds. He's chosen to put them behind his back where he can't even see them. God has the capacity that we don't yet to choose to not remember what we can't help but, but, but to have in our minds. And so he sees in Thomas, thankfully, not just this moment. In fact, he can't even see it. He only sees his son Jesus covering Thomas's dark moment. But let's talk about it for a second. Thomas the doubter. He should be called, in my opinion, Thomas the honest. 
Because if we're just going to pick a moment out of his life, why don't we pick one of his good ones? Thomas the Honest, right? There's, there's a need for greater honesty in our day, in a day where we don't know who to trust and what news is real. And it's just confusing. People say this, oh, you shouldn't wear masks. Well, now they say you should. People say they, should, this, they, they shouldn't do this. And I feel like every day we're, we're needing to, to figure out what's true, what's not. Thomas was someone who was honest. He had a great honest moment. It's in John chapter 14 when Jesus was telling the disciples that he was going to leave the world and go to heaven. And uh, apparently, as he was describing where he was going to go and how it was all going to work, the disciples were all nodding their head and trying to look intelligent. But then Thomas raised his hand up. And in John 14, verse 5, he said, uh, Master, we have no idea where you're going, and we have no idea how you're going to get there. Because Jesus had just said, you guys know where I'm going, right? And everyone's going, mm-hmm, yes, we do. We're very smart. We took notes when you were t- teaching. Thomas goes, uh, we have no idea where you're going, and we have no clue how you're going to get there. And I imagine Jesus like looking at the rest of the disciples going, is that true? And I'm going, yeah, actually, we, we have no clue. I, I have no idea. This is actually an etch-a-sketch. I, I wasn't even taking notes. I was just, <laughs> just doodling. Uh, so, 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 so Thomas the Honest, one of his finer moments. And we could also call him Thomas the Brave. Thomas the Brave. Because when Jesus told the disciples that Lazarus had died, Lazarus was Jesus's like, best friend, it seems, one of, one of his better friends in the world. And, and Jesus would stay at his house often. He loved Lazarus. He loved Mary. He loved Martha, Lazarus's sisters. And, uh, and yet when they sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick, he stayed several more days in the place where he was. Isn't it interesting that Jesus chose to stay back? Why would he do that? Because he had a plan. It didn't make sense to Mary, who wept. It didn't make sense to Martha, who was mad. And we all grieve differently. And make no mistake, what we're dealing with is grief, the grief of how life used to be, the grief of, of things we wanted to do, the, the, the grief of trips we had paid for and, and, and longed for, the, the grief of, of jobs that are seemingly crumbling to ash in our hands, the, the, the dream of savings, which is, is rapidly dwindling. This is grief. And and as we grieve, sometimes we're, we're like Mary weeping. Sometimes we're like Martha, mad and confused and wanting answers. But Jesus did nothing. The disciples said, why don't, why don't you go? You're pretty epic saving all these people here, but what about the one you love? And Jesus still did nothing. Then finally, word came that Lazarus was dead. And Jesus turned to his guys and goes, now we need to go. And they're like, wait, you're, you're confusing even us. We told you he's sick and you do nothing. Now that he's dead, you're wanting to rush and leave these people who need you to go be with him? Why? And he said, no, no, Lazarus is sleeping. And they go, oh, well, then why do we need to go? If he's just sleeping, he'll wake up. He goes, no, 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 you don't understand. He's actually dead. Now, the devil's like, well, that makes sense. You know what I'm saying, right? That's about as clear as mud. And so Jesus finally just said, I, you have to understand, he's sleeping in death. Because to me, death is like you taking a nap. I'm going to wake him up from death but he's actually dead. And when Thomas heard that, he, he didn't have any idea what he was talking about. But look, talk, let's, let's, let's give him a nickname for this moment. John chapter 11, verse 6, he said, well, then fine, look at it. Let's all go that we may all die with him. Right? Thomas the brave, misguided. This doesn't even really make sense. And it's bad logic. If they all die, who's going to do anything? But he's like, you know what? Screw it. Let's do it. I'm in. I, compel, I, I, I want to commend Thomas for his bravery. Thomas the honest, Thomas the brave. But no, we pick this one moment where he blew it, and we choose to forever remember him as Thomas the doubter. I think, though, 
that it was for those two exact reasons that he was constantly honest. And when others were scared, he somehow rallied and showed bravery that he here on this moment succumbed to doubt. Because it's possible at times for us to have done so much for God and tried so hard to, to do what God wants us to do. And then God zigs when we feel like he should zag. The mountain stays still when we spoke in faith that it should move. The sun set when we prophetically listened to, listening to the spirit or so we thought said sun stand still. And in those moments when we've been so honest and we've tried so hard to be brave that we feel abandoned by God. And then the big crisis comes and we cave and doubt. Thomas doubted. But I want to pick our way through his journey. And I want to do so in a way that hopefully will show every single one of us this truth. There is hope for the skeptic. There is hope for the skeptic. Thomas walked away from the cross, it seems, from the crucifixion, the death of his savior, feeling abandoned. And when he could have believed and trusted, he said, I've seen it. I've seen enough. I thought Jesus was the one. I thought he was, I'd give my whole life for him. I've been honest. I've been, I've been vulnerable. I've been brave. But once bitten, I'm not going to give my heart out again. So he doubted in this moment. No one's going to fool me twice. And I want to pick our way through the journey and show you that there is hope for the skeptic. There's hope for the person who, watching this webcast, feels doubt in your heart that this situation, this COVID-19 situation, is going to be OK, that, that everything of what you believe about God and the goodness of this world, it's all kind of being questioned. And will God provide? And is there hope for my kids? And, and all, yes, you want to believe that your children and your children's children, you're like, it's going to be hard with the economy as it is and what they're saying of what this could be and the da-da-da-da-da. And all of a sudden, we're just in this tizzy of doubt. But God, I've been brave, and God, I've, I've, I've been honest, and now I feel abandoned. Thomas's journey in this text starts with these two things, absence and unbelief. Absence and unbelief. And I believe they were symbiotic. That is to say, they fueled one another, and that the greater his absence, the greater uh, his unbelief became. What do I mean? I mean, the text tells us clearly that the 10 gathered on Sunday, and Thomas was not present. This is verse 24. Thomas was not with them. Thomas was not with them. The disciples gathered like a bunch of coals to stay hot, like a bunch of, like a bunch of, 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 of wolves in a pack, like a bunch of sheep in a flock, like a Fresh Life small group on a Zoom call. They gathered together, but the Bible says Thomas was not with them, absent from his crew, absent from the people who were there to rally him and encourage him and pray for him and, and build him up and hold him accountable. Thomas was absent. Yes, he caved and gave into unbelief, but I believe he had an easier time doing so because of his absence. This is not the time for lone wolf behavior. This is not the time to be off on our own. This is not the time to feel abandoned and therefore uh, be reclusive that this time of social isolation should not become a time of relational separation, that we need each other now more than ever. Someone chat that. Come on, now more than ever. 
Why? Because this is not the time. That's what Hebrews 10 says. This is not the time to pull away and neglect meeting together, as some have formed the habit of doing, because we need each other. In fact, we should come together even more frequently, eager to encourage and urge each other onward as we anticipate that day dawning. Man, I'm so encouraged just thinking that dawn is coming, and this is not the time to pull away. Thomas felt abandoned and did the exact opposite of what he should have done, because he should have taken his pain and his feelings of, I feel abandoned, and his feelings of, why is God doing this, and, and what happened, and brought all that chaos and confusion into the gathering, which is meant to be a place of questions, which is meant to be a place of doubt, which is meant to be a place of skepticism. But the problem is, we've wrongly thought the churches were put together, people come to polish our halos. And I can't log on to the church online broadcast because it would be disingenuous because I spent the whole week yelling at my kids and feeling frustrated and worrying and compulsively refreshing my Charles Schwab account to see my 401k absolutely assaulted. And I'm going, what, what? I've trusted in this world. You know what? I, I'm not good enough to go to God in prayer. Why should I spend time with him anyway? He's not going to want to hear from me, thinking that we only bring to God our best when we, what we were forgetting is that the best thing we ever had to offer God was our emptiness, that he might fill with his glory, fill with his power, fill with his peace, that he might sent us out into the world once a week to a grocery store, but to be loving and kind in all of our interactions. So this is not the time to pull away. And I believe it was his absence from the gathering that actually fueled even more doubt in his life. And it snowballed out of control from there. Why? Well, you know how that, that feeling goes when, when you, you first hear about a party? Use your imagination, I realize. And, and, and when you first hear about it, you're kind of hoping you get invited. Oh, you're going to where? Oh, my invitation's probably coming. I'm going to get that email. I just know it's coming. And then when eventually it doesn't come, you kind of shift and be like, I don't like parties anyway. You go, nothing? No, those are stupid. Everyone knows parties are dumb. I never wanted to go anyway, right? And I think Thomas, once he doubted and then didn't go, and then they saw Jesus, it made it that much easier when they told him I, he's live to go, no, I don't believe it happened. And I never will, and I never will believe because now it's kind of his ego's involved. And now his pride's been wounded. Now I miss showing up and I feel bad that I didn't show up and I could have seen him, but I'm like just throwing down, like just destroying everything, like almost like self-destructive mode because I'm hurt and I'm sad and I'm wounded and I didn't get to be a part of this experience. So now it's easy for me to, to color everything as gray. And so the absence led to unbelief, which is why we have to be present for each other. Yes, in small groups and all that, but especially on the first day of the week. This gathering where Jesus showed up was on Sunday. And ever since Christ rose from the dead, his people have taken Sunday as a chance to celebrate the newness of creation that happened when Christ rose from the dead. That's church. Why, why, why the first day of the week? Because the old creation week had ended. God made the world on the first day. On the sixth day, he made man. On the seventh day, he created rest. But we sinned and we squandered the opportunity to live in a perfect world full of relationship with God. So we were in need of a restoration of all things, which is what the cross has done as God began a new creation week. That's why it was no mistake that when the disciples were in the upper room and Jesus showed up, he breathed on them, mimicking what happened at creation when God made man. What was he saying on the first day of the week? He was saying that old system is gone. That old thing is done away with. It's been fulfilled completely. Now, because of Jesus, there's a new creation. You are a new creation. Old has gone. New has come. You can relate to me on the basis of my son, Jesus. 
That's why we gather. And the small groups are vital. The serving is vital. But we must not forsake this, regardless of whether we can come into a building or not, that we prioritize the meeting together in the name of Jesus for worship and the word and taking communion and prayer and all of the things that make Jesus' body so powerful until he returns. Thomas's absence and unbelief was met with persistence and kindness, though. And this is on behalf of the disciples. This is our second point, persistence and kindness. They responded to him being absent where he should have been present and unbelieving where he should have been believing by being kind and doing so persistently. They were kind to him, and they persistently tried to reach out to him. What, it, what, is, what does that mean? OK, Thomas hears from the disciples, we have seen the Lord. That was their message to him. We have seen the Lord. That's the message we have to tell the world, too. We have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. And he didn't believe. He said, I, I don't believe, and I won't believe. In fact, and then he got really grisly. Unless I could stick my finger in the nails of his hand, right? This is not a guy who really thought Jesus was going to show up. Because that would be so awkward if he ever did. And you said that. That would be so awkward. He, this is the guy going, I'll never believe until pigs fly. I mean, he's just thinking the most outlandish thing. Unless I could put my hand in the, the wound in his, ugh. It's never going to happen, OK? And the disciples should, should be appalled. What kind of a disciple are you? And, and turn their back on him, right? That's not at all how they respond. In fact, the Greek suggests that they didn't give up on him. They kept inviting him to join for church online. They kept telling them about their faith. They kept little things, little things, little things. In fact, the Greek is so loaded with a continual use that the J.B. Phillips translation actually gives us a better translation of this verse, verse 25. The other disciples kept on telling him, we have seen the Lord. Who in your life have you only told once and they didn't respond, so you give up on them? They kept on telling him, Thomas, no, Tuesday, Wednesday. It wasn't just a, a one and done thing. It was, it was Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We've seen the Lord, Thomas. We, no, I'm not. Stop it. Shut up. Stop it. Shut up. But they were kind about it. How do I know that? Because it says in the text, on Sunday, a week later, they gathered together. This is verse 26. Inside again. And notice what I underlined. Actually, it's only underlined in my Bible. You have to underline it in yours. I can't do everything. <laughs> And Thomas was with them. What does it say about the graciousness of his friends that even when he adamantly disbelieved, they still wanted him to be along? They still included him. Can we create a church that's a safe space for people who aren't on a dip in their journey? Can we be unshockable, unoffendable, and constantly loving to where you can belong here even before you believe? Even when you don't believe, I, I don't believe in sacrilegious almost like, oh, until I touch this corpse, I'm not going to. Cool. Come on, Thomas. You come to church, right? Tom, you're going to be with us in the house. I saved you a seat. I'm making your favorite flavor of coffee. How loving, how kind. Some of us are kind, but not persistent. We love people, but we're not telling them that we've seen the Lord. Others of us are, are being persistent, but not kind. It takes that truth and love for us to really touch people like we're meant to. And that persistence and kindness set the stage for Thomas to have an encounter and receive an invitation. Encounter and invitation. That's our th 
A third point that we want to consider on Thomas's journey from this Sunday to Sunday space of time. This is all one week of his life. Because they were kind and repeatedly invited him, and he was present now, he had an encounter with Jesus. Thomas is there. Doors are locked. Jesus shows up. Awkward. I mean, just imagine the scene. He shows up in the midst. And what does he say to Thomas? Can't believe you. After all I've done for you. No. He says, peace, Thomas. Peace. The first words that he speaks to the skeptic are peace. The first words to the person who was offensive in his disbelief was peace. Jesus speaks hope to the skeptic still. Peace to you. I'm not mad at you. I love you. I saw this coming. Bro, peace to you. Peace, Thomas. He had an encounter with Jesus. Why? Because he prioritized being there. He, he showed up. He, 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 he took the opportunity to be there, even in his fear, even in his anger, even in all of it. He still was willing to open up the scripture and, and, and ask God to, to talk to him. And I think the same can happen to us. When we don't understand, it's the perfect time for us to have an encounter with God. So, so scripture tells us, seek me and you'll find me. Draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. You watch what happens. Give God that space. Give God that time. Prioritize opening up your, your Bibles. OK, that's the awesome part. The awkward part is the invitation. Encounter. And then Jesus invited Thomas to do something. He says, uh, Hey, uh, so peace to you, but I, I heard uh, <clears throat> I heard you uh, like wanted to put your finger in my wounds. It's not super sanitary and for sure not supported by the CDC, but uh, have at it. Good. Thomas didn't want to anymore. It seems Thomas had completely changed his tune because he's now seen the Lord who is inviting him to touch him. And the, the Bible says in verse 29, at the end of this whole incident, that Jesus says, you have believed because you saw me. If Thomas had taken him at his invitation and actually touched him and gone, OK, now I believe, Jesus would have said, you believe because you've touched me. He didn't. He said, you have believed now because you have seen me, which tells me this. When Thomas finally received what he thought he would need to believe, he realized he didn't need it after all. Seeing him was enough. In fact, it had been enough just to hear and see his friend's reaction to the resurrection. That would have been enough. He had enough to believe all along. He just was creating objections based on preference of how God should work. Jesus and Thomas's worldviews were in collision. He thought Jesus was late. Jesus was right on time. So he was in his rage and in his need to control outcome, choosing to, 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 to name the circumstances that God would need to fill, the boxes that God would need to check. But God has never submitted himself to any of our approvals. He's never uh, negotiated terms and conditions on anything. He is God who rules the universe, and he has sovereignly chosen to allow what he's chosen to allow. And in the midst of it all, he has a plan to reconcile all things to himself, and that includes you, and that includes me. And he's chosen to go to the cross with our sins, to pay the bill for every wrong thing we've done. He rose from the dead, overcoming the grave, and he rules as king forever. And he is not asking, are you OK with it? He's 
simply willing to forgive you and flood into your life and change you and fill you with his Holy Spirit. And Thomas, who thought God needed to do this and needed to do that, had, had now given, been, been, been called out on the carpet for calling God to hop through hoops. And he realized he didn't want a God who was a circus performer. He wanted a God who could kick the teeth of the devil in. And so when Jesus says, I, I want to give you space to, to touch my wounds, Thomas just says, giving our final point, my Lord and my God. Last point, declaration and demonstration. He declared my Lord and my God, which is really cool because theologians say that this amounts to one of the most powerful and most concise declarations of deity anywhere in the New Testament, which is pretty cool that the same guy who doubted the resurrection, sorry, six feet, <laughs> doubted the resurrection ever happened is also the same guy who opened his mouth and spoke the greatest, clearest demonstration of Jesus' divinity ever. My Lord and my God. Someone said that when he said my Lord, he was putting Jesus on the throne of his heart. And when he said my God, he was recognizing that Jesus is on the throne of the entire universe my Lord and my God, not the Lord and the God, my Lord and my God. What Thomas was doing was bending his knee before his king. He was saying, I don't need to, to check to see if you're real. I can very well see that you're real. And hopefully you can see me submitted to your reign and your salvation. That's declaration. The demonstration came later. The demonstration would happen in the change in Thomas. He declared Jesus as his king, but for the rest of his life, he would demonstrate that he was under the rule of Jesus as king. You see, church history tells us that Thomas went forth from this room, a changed man, and where he previously didn't believe, he now was filled with faith and filled with power and the Holy Ghost. And he went out preaching, and he went out fulfilling Jesus' command to make disciples of every creature and go into different nations. And church history tells us that he ended up in Parthia. This is from John Fox's Book of Martyrs. He preached the gospel in Parthia and India, where exciting the rage of the pagan priests, he was martyred by being thrust through with a spear with a spear. In 2015, I took a trip to India. And while there, they took us to a site, a church named after Thomas. And there was a field outside with a cross in the middle. And there they told us it's believed that Thomas, the apostle of Jesus, was run through with a spear. And that image has always been in my mind of that field in India and the heat and the humidity. And yet the beauty, the sea close by, southern India. But it wasn't until this week that as I began to think about Thomas dying with a spear, that I realized the connection to this moment. Because he said, I won't believe until I get to put my hand in the hole in your side. A hole in Jesus' side. John 19 tells us 
that at the death of Jesus, soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. Jesus' heart was punctured. That's why blood and water ran out. And the Romans didn't need to break his legs because when they saw the blood and water gushing, they knew he was dead. So the wound that Thomas referred to was a spear wound. And as he preached, a changed man, still honest, braver than ever, but no longer full of doubt because he had submitted his doubts to the lordship of Jesus. So when these hostile enemies commanded him to preach no more, he lovingly, kindly, no doubt said, I, I cannot help but testify of the things I have seen and the things I have heard. I have seen the Lord brandishing their spears. They threatened him and as the spear came towards his side. Can you picture him? Flashing back to that moment. He continued to preach. And as he was run through, according to legend, the last thing he said before he died, spear in his heart, was my Lord and my God, repeating what he said that day, still very much convinced, even at the hour of his death, of the Lordship of Jesus, that he was still king, no longer controlled by doubt, now given peace like a river, joy irrepressible. He was powerful in triumph, and he met his end with glory. He met his end with praise on his lips. Why? Because he had seen the hole in Jesus' side, and it gave him courage, even when a, spar, a spear entered his. And I believe that it's because of Thomas's faith, because of Thomas's conversion. It's because of Thomas's power that we today don't need to touch Jesus to believe. Why? We've seen enough. We have seen Thomas's life change. We've seen Martha's life change and Mary's life change. We have seen through the history, through credible eyewitness evidence, that Joseph of Arimathea was changed. And so we can receive conviction and power and strength in our doubts because we've seen enough. Thomas's story tells us that we're not limited by where we started, that we can experience great breakthrough even after our biggest failure. Thomas's story tells us that even and especially when we feel abandoned by God, He is with us, present, even when He feels far. As I think about Thomas, I can't help but think about the moment, the moment when he heard Jesus say, you want to touch my nail prints? And Thomas realized, oh, you were with me last week. When I said that, I couldn't see you. 
but now I'm realizing you were with me when you felt far away. And I speak over your situation. You feel abandoned by God. He is present even when he feels far. So don't wait for this all to end, this crisis, this craziness, to trust him and believe him. Declare in faith that he is present now, near when he feels far. And you will find coursing through your veins the blessings that come to those who believe when they don't see. We don't see how he's gonna work in this situation, but we don't need to. We've seen enough. We've seen the nail prints in his followers, what they saw in their eyes that so changed them. And we can by faith declare our allegiance to Jesus, our Lord and our God, no matter how he chooses to work in this situation, no matter how long this lasts, no matter what the repercussions are to the economy, we know how this thing ends. It's Jesus on the throne of the universe to put him on the throne of your heart today in the midst of what you're afraid of.